and let's pray as we attend to it. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think together on these verses from the letter to the Hebrews, that our minds and our hearts would be warmed and that our minds um, would see, our eyes would see, as it were, Jesus lifted up high and exalted and our hearts captured by him. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Beware the dreaded drift, everybody. Beware the dreaded drift. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation. Beware the dreaded drift from Jesus, from his word, and from his salvation. This is the message that the letter to the Hebrews drums into its readers in every age. And it's very timely that we hear that message right now, at this moment, in our series of sermons through this uh, early summer. Back about last year, about just over a year ago, at the start of lockdown, I remember a preacher, it's Hugh Palmer, the former rector at All Souls in London, um, say that the months ahead would refine the churches because, he said, with the props removed, some will drift away. And over a year later, many fellowships right up and down the land are discovering that this is, in fact, exactly what has happened. But actually not just this particular moment of history, there is always a danger of the dreaded drift, whether that's through an outward abandonment of the faith and of church, or just an inward disengagement with it all while still going through the motions. I don't know what the factors are that push and pull on your faith. Have you stood in the water on the beach up to chest level and felt the, the push and the pull of the the currents. The currents are around us all the time, threatening to drag away peer pressure, attractive anti-Christian ideas, incompatible lifestyles, continuous distraction, the slog of fighting sin, the desire for possessions, the ambition to be great in the eyes of the world, just sheer boredom sometimes, disillusion. And in fact, sadly, of course, sometimes the church uh, lets people down and they feel driven away. There are lots of these push and pull factors. Well, close attention to the letters of the Hebrews can help to hold us all, to hold us fast in our faith, because the church that originally received this mighty letter was also in danger of this dreaded drift. Now, we'd love to know who wrote the letters of the Hebrews. there have been different ideas to the year. For many years, people thought it was written by St. Paul. It almost certainly wasn't. The smart money today seems to be on either one of those two close associates of the apostles, and Barnabas or Apollos. We don't know. We don't know where they were writing from, but the letter gives clear clues about the church that received it. They were almost definitely from a Jewish background. They were people who had heard the gospel and they had believed it with joy. And they had publicly identified themselves as Jesus' people in the teeth of intense persecution. But now, several, we don't know, months or perhaps a few years afterwards, 
They are in danger of the dreaded drift. They're dicing with spiritual death. Now, there are a couple of factors, push and pull, on them, threatening to lead into the drift. On the one hand, their hearts are pulled back to their Jewish roots. They probably lived in and around the Jewish heartland of Jerusalem. And so they were steeped in that culture, that religious culture of angels and priests, sacrifices and ceremonies. And all of that was alluringly familiar to them. But on the other hand, if their roots threatened to drag them back from Christ, persecution threatened to drive them from him. Confiscated property, imprisonment, some of them had experienced it. It would have been extremely tempting just to stop meeting together as a new community of Jesus' followers and just blend back in to their culture. They don't keep Jesus, you know, as, as sort of a part of their spirituality, perhaps, but basically to blend back in to where they came from. So the question is, what persuasion could possibly be strong enough to withstand and prevent that dreaded drift? Answer, only a fresh vision of Jesus in all his significance. And that is what can hold us. There's a moment I love in John's Gospel when many of Jesus' followers turn back from him. It's in chapter 6. And um, many of the followers turn away. And so Jesus then looks, as it were, to the, into the eyeballs of, his, of the twelve, the close disciples. And he says, do you are you intending to do the same? Well, Peter answered in words that seem to me to sum up my response anyway to reading the letter to the Hebrews. And Peter's answer was this, Lord, to whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, the letter to the Hebrews set Jesus before us as the ultimate, the definitive, the supreme, the eternal, the total saviour. To whom else could we possibly go unless we actually want to crash on the rocks? Well, last week Adam took the opening four verses and what a vision they present. Jesus, the fully divine son. He has spoken God's ultimate word. And then becoming man, he has provided purification for our sins by the shedding of his blood, and he now sits in heaven's highest place. Well, now the writer begins to spell out where this places Jesus in relation to some of the familiar ideas and practices that so attracted them. So where does Jesus fit then in relation, say, to angels? Their culture was obsessed with angels, it seems. Not that they would have worshipped the angels, exactly, these exalted heavenly creatures. They were, they, were, they, they were readers of the Old Testament. They knew you didn't worship angels. But it is very possible that they were tempted to reinterpret Jesus, to re-picture him as an angel. And that would, of course, have helped them if they just said to their friends, oh, of course, Jesus is just, is just another angel, really. Their friends might have been a bit more, oh, okay, oh, yeah, I see. And so that would have helped them to blend in better with everybody else. And that's why, in chapter 1, verse 4, just before our passage today, the writer blows this possibility out of the water. Here's the statement that lies behind everything else we're going to say this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 
says that Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Jesus superior to the angels. Well, the rest of chapter 1 justifies that statement with a series of quotations, seven of them, from the Old Testament. And then at the start of chapter 2, he cashes in his point. If Jesus is infinitely superior to the angels, then we mustn't even think of giving way to the dreaded drift. Well, so as we develop this study now, let's just follow the chain of quotations from the Old Testament, seven of them, and uh, discover the infinite heights of Jesus' true status. The seven quotes, they're actually delivered in three pairs. That makes six. Pair one, pair two, pair three, that's six. And then the seventh, the mighty statement crowning the list at the end of the chapter. By the way, in another setting, I'd love to branch out and spend time going back into the context of all those Old Testament quotations back in the original context. Um, For now, I'm just going to stay on the main line of uh, the argument of our passage. So, Jesus has inherited a superior name to the angels. What is that name? Well, how can we miss it? In the first pair of quotations, verse 5. I'm tempted to burst into song from Handel's Messiah, but don't worry, it's only early in the morning, so I won't. Verse 5. For unto which of the angels did God say at any time, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be his father and he will be my son. My son. That's the name. Now, it is true that in the Bible, angels and men actually are sometimes referred to as sons of God. But did an angel ever hear these words? These words that were spoken uniquely to this one? You, in particular, out of all are my own and unique son. Never. Only one person inherits that. These two quotations, actually, they go back. They belong to the same strand of biblical teaching. They both go back to God's promise to anoint one of King David's descendants as the king of heaven and of earth. And, of course, that has been gloriously fulfilled in Jesus, descended from David, The father, remember, spoke the words at his baptism. You are my son. And then in Jesus' resurrection, God was powerfully declaring Jesus to be what he in fact had been since the world began. Son. Son of God. The unique, only begotten son of God. And of course, as son... Jesus stands in the closest relation to God the Father as an equal, intimate, as uniquely loved. No angel can aspire to that. As we're going to see from the second set of quotations. So we looked at the first pair. Here's the second pair, verses 6 and 7. And again, says our writer, when God brings his firstborn into the world, that is his son into the world, he says... Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. 
Do you see that? Jesus has a far higher status than the angels because they are commanded to worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. He is the son. What are they? Verse 6, they are just the servants. Okay, third pair of quotations. And they lift our vision even higher. Verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, they quote... Psalm 45, which is the great wedding song destined to be used for David's eternal descendant. It's an amazing song, Psalm 45. But just listen, this quote, I love this quote. Just listen how the Father addresses this one, this, this son. He says, to, he says of him, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever. Do you get that? What does, what does God call the Son? He calls him God. Your throne, O oh God, will last forever. The Father calls him God, which of course is why the angels worship him. An angel would never worship another angel, let alone a mere man. But they must worship this man, this man Jesus, because he is, at the same time as he is fully man, also fully divine. He is God. So, in other words, the point here is not just, actually, that Jesus is better than angels. This is not like a game of top trumps, where Jesus simply has a higher score in all the categories than the angels. This is not just, he's, Jesus is not just top of the league, you know, the best in a league table of other good, of, of things that are just a bit less good than him. He is in a different league. You know, there are basically two categories of things in the whole of reality. They are the uncreated God and the heavens and the earth he created. You get those are the two categories of being. The uncreated God and the creation. Which category does he belong in? Well, the angels belong in the second category. They are created beings. But the Son belongs in the first category. He is the creator God. And the next quotation um, in Psalm 102 makes that very clear. God also says, and this is going on in the passage from verse 10, God also says, In the beginning, O Lord, he said this to the Son, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. See, the Son is Lord. That means he created the world in the beginning with his Father, and he will oversee it at its end. So, what do we think of that? Reinterpreting Jesus as though he were just one of the angels albeit a really good one and a really powerful one. No, that would be blasphemous. Jesus cannot be reduced to that level, let alone to the level of a merely human prophet, as uh, the Quran reduces him, or to the level of a merely human teacher, as the kind of contemporary secular uh, outlook of the history of religions reinterprets him. It, it's not good enough. 
These three pairs of quotations, they tell us that he is God's unique and equal son, that he is the fit object of the angel's worship because he is the fully divine Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, now for the crowning quotation. Verse 13. So we've had the, we've had the three pairs. Now this is the seventh, the crowning quotation. Verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That is the opening of the mighty Psalm 110. Did you know that's the New Testament's most quoted Old Testament text? Psalm 100, uh, Psalm 110. The f and, and what's going on there is the Father is enthroning the Son and saying to him, sit, your work complete, and in the meantime, I will bend history towards your rule and place all your enemies as a footstool under your feet. Did God ever say that to an angel? Can the archangels, Gabriel and Michael, claim that? Do you know what? I
passages in the Bible that angels were in attendance as the law of Moses was spoken from Mount Sinai. And as we know, breaching that law led to the most terrible consequences. But the law given through angels, the, the, the Old Testament law, actually the stakes are low. For all who hear Jesus' message of salvation, the stakes are far higher. The message spoken through angels, that's the school rules. This, and Jesus, is the law of the land. Neglect what he said, what he did. The consequences would be as great as the status of the one we neglect. As Peter put it, if we drift from Jesus, to whom else do we propose to go? No one, nothing, could in any way mitigate what would be an infinite loss. So the letter to he the Hebrews forces us to ask deep questions about whether it's possible to lose salvation through neglect or disobedience.
pray half asleep with the toddlers climbing all over me. Morning after morning, I was just, I, it was a haze. And uh, that, but that was a phase, that, that was the phase of life. Of course, some people have got into a great routine of listening to the scriptures and praying on their commute. Some families have learned to juggle which Sunday service they get to to make sure that they're there. Daily prayer, Bible reading, weekly church. It's not a, it's not a, a new divine law in the, the sense of, in the sense of, you know, th- this is you measure your um, worth by this or anything like that. It's not an end in itself, but it is the God-given means to a very vital end. It's how we pay the closest attention to this great salvation. So if you want to think more about how to develop daily prayer, Bible reading, weekly church in your life, try the podcasts. Um, or, or Adam could probably print you off the, 